Hello and welcome to Birdcast, a podcast looking at all iterations of Nigel Neal's stories on film, TV and radio. In our second lockdown special, we have the first of a two-part look at some of the lost Nigel Neal stories with Nigel Neal biographer Andy Murray and actor-comedian and writer of forthcoming definitive book on Quatermass, Toby Haydock. In this episode, we look at Neal's early radio plays, The Lost Stairs and You Must Listen, Neil's application to join the BBC, as well as classics like The Creature and The Road, which Toby adapted for radio in 2018. So the earlier stuff that Nigel did for the BBC was radio. It's his first credit. I should have structured that sentence better. Uh, 1950s, that right, Andy? Yeah, so that's The Long Stairs, which is kind of docudrama about the Snaefell, not Manx, I hope I'm not pronouncing this horribly wrong, Snaefell mining disaster. And it is, it is basically, it almost starts like a news report or, or, or a, you can see it totally grows out of the fact that he's writing short stories. It's almost like a, uh, it's quite prosy. And obviously he's from the Isle of Man, so it's, it's drawing on a sort of real life event that he knows about, but it's, it's literally him dramatising a real life event. So at this point, he'd, he'd written short stories. He'd written Tomato Kane. Mm. Uh, that's his only published work so far, is that right? Yeah, uh, yeah, that's, that's all he did. Uh, sort of various stories in Tomato Kane were published separately before the book. But yeah, mm-hmm. that's, he would no other books after that. He's, ne- he's, he's won the Sunset Warner Award. He's now employed, he's now employed by the BBC. And this is his first gig. And he chooses something very close to his heart, uh, a real-life mining disaster on the Isle of Man. How was he? How was he commissioned for this? Was it just a gap in the schedules? Was he able to, to was almost like an audition piece, or did he come to the BBC and say? Yeah, well, this actually predates him sort of working for them technically. So this is kind of more more when he's in his sort of short story period, and he's kind of left Rada and he's looking for contacts, looking for work, and he makes contact and offers them the story, offers to write this piece for them. And it's yeah, it's it's pretty good. It's pretty dramatic. You can see that straight away he's sort of writing about. A group of people in peril, which obviously is is, is something that he, he goes on to write a lot. It's it's not necessarily the blueprint for everything else he goes on to write, but yeah, it's a it's a pretty strong start, I think. And when was this the real life disaster that's eighteen ninety seven? Eighteen ninety seven. it's interesting because um, uh, the the Radio Times gives it a sort of. Uh, a hint of things to come in terms of his writing, because it says, uh, in May 1897, as Nigel Neal's programme recalls, it was the scene of a terrifying mine disaster made more horrible by its very quietness. There was no shattering underground explosion, no roar of escaping floodwater. And today, 50 years later, the eerie quality of the whole affair survives. So even even his docudrama had a sort of, but that's the Manx thing, isn't it? All, even something, he's doing something about a mining disaster 100 years ago, but it's like, we've got to have this sort of folky, ancient yeah. eeriness about it, you know, interesting. I can't help thinking if there were, you know, um, similar dramatizations about like famous, infamous Welsh mining disasters, it, it might not have been so sort of seen as delicious. But then it's, mm. I was about to say it's a long time ago. It's only, what, 50 years just from before. Yeah. I'm not sure if in in a, in a, in, a, in a similar way. I suppose you're like, dating this, but you know, was it Tuesday night? Was the Windrush dra- dramatization? We're not sort of selling this on the basis of anything more than the the, the inherent uh, scandal of, of 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 what it is, rather than trying to add sort of folk horror to um, to, to the tale just because it's seen as. But that's that's I suppose the uh, the, the role that 
the Isle of Man can play in the way you want to want, want, want to tell something. The the clipping you read out there, Toby, is that Radio Times? Yeah. Um, that, wouldn't, um, that wouldn't have been written, written by Nigel Neal himself, would it? Uh, no, it's, 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 uh, it's part of a general what's on the radio, so they write up two or three different things. But, ne- but never it's interesting that regardless of now how we view the sort of writer that Nigel Neal is and how uh, foreshadowing that, that piece is, they choose to um, imbue a natural tragedy with, with an otherworldliness as a, as, a, as, a, as, a, as a selling point. Yeah, uh, and it also fact for it, uh, uh, amongst the cast are Derek Geiler, best known for uh, Please Sarah and all of those, uh, Noel Johnson, Dick Barton, and Eric Lugg, who is the farmer in the, uh, the opening episode of uh, Quatermass 2, who finds the uh, meteorites. Ah, yes. uh, Be- like beginnings of a Neil. Um... And, and there is an element of that, sort of, you know, it, it, it is, you know, sort of comparing it to other disasters, that there is a degree to which it is talking about there is a flaw in the system, the flaw in the system results in loss of life. It's not, you know, there is a, a, a lesson to be learned from the disaster. And I think there's a story that when they were casting it, they, they obviously all the characters are Manx. They were struggling to find Manx actors or actors who could pull That's off a Manx. Manx with an X, by the way, not, yeah, people, yes. not, not, yeah, not, not, not people like Andy and Toby. <laughs> yeah, and I think Neil cropped up himself in some smaller role, as he tended to do. But again, because he was an actor and because he could do the accent or... That was his accent. Do you ever have any speaking roles in his cameos on telly? Not on screen. There are quite a few occasions when he speaks. You know, he sort of does a, an announcement, a voice and things like that. Oh, yes, that's right. Uh, 1984 and the Quatermasses, he quite often, you, you hear him, but you don't see him sort of thing. Well, he's the, he's, you hear him a lot in 1984 and Quatermass 2, but also he stands in over Christmas on Quatermass in the Pit when Alexander Moyes, the normal narrator, has two weeks <laughs> off. So you'll notice that episode three of Quasimass and the Pit, yeah. uh, the previously on, is done by Nigel Neal uh, in his in his and you, and you can sort of the, the Manx lilt is quite pronounced. He didn't he didn't lose his accent at Rada as many actors did in <laughs> in those days. You would begin because that would have been done live, wouldn't it? Interesting that it wasn't just replaced by another continuity announcer. No, it wasn't. No, it was actually it was a pre-record. But, oh, okay. Um, right. but, but the guy was still on holiday, so. Um, <laughs> I think they recorded it on a weekly basis and uh, he was off and wasn't back in time in order to do it. I think it happens with Quasimass 2 as well where uh, Neil has a week off and another announcer does one of the episodes of Quasimass 2, one of the middle ones I think. Um, I, I only know because I've done a biography that's about 400 words long of the guy that they get for one week to do that. That's why this book's taken so long, because it's got that sort of gold in it. <laughs> so, there, will be, there will be a story to be written about you writing this book. Uh, <laughs> possibly, love, possibly Lovecraft. Yeah, in, in, in so presumably um, The Long Stairs was, was well received by the BBC. Yes, I mean... I think it was, but I don't think they were in any great rush to give him a, the next radio play. He does his two years later. Yeah, there are no there are no press reviews at all. Must be probably really excited, waiting for because I've done this. You know, you wait you wait for all the papers to come out. And you go, oh, there, nobody's nobody's bothered. So no, no press reviews of it at all. I don't think. No. Nope. And unlike, and unlike you, Toby, he couldn't even take solace in social media trying to praise him. Yeah, he was there on Twitter, searching hashtag Longstairs. Or, yeah. It was actually, although it's lost, it was actually remade um, for Manx oh, really? Radio mm. with, so with just... amateur actors uh, about 20 years ago, I think, something like that. And 
so you know it's it's lost but it's been recreated so when does he so when does he move to the bbc full-time to, to scriptifies uh it's of 52 isn't it so there's that um the, the, technically his, his first actual television credit is that he writes a short story called essence of strawberry which is in, included in tomato cane uh and that is then adapted for american television but not by him so really splitting hairs that's technically his first television credit but who, that's who, lost. and he didn't write it in, so. who, who developed that in the u.s who was who broadcast it uh, CBS. It was part of a series called The Web. How did they get hold of it? Why was a, a Max writer on, on the on, on the, yeah, on the, ra- well, on the radar of the, of the US? Well, he, he did have an American publisher, so he was sort of okay, right? Okay. Tomato Kane got a lot of really good reviews mm. uh, and won a prize, won the Somerset Maugham Prize. Mm. So he was, he, he, you know, he, he had a bit of heft behind him in publishing circles. But interestingly, in in the fifth in 1951, he he, he writes to the BBC but asks him, he wants to work in the production side of television. That's what he, uh, right, he doesn't know he's writing to Michael Barry, but I think it ends up on Michael Barry's desk. And uh, he's, yeah, he specifically says he wants to work on the production side rather than the writing side, which is interesting. But obviously, as we know, ends up as a staff writer, which will have all sorts of ramifications for his relationship with the BBC and indeed Quasimass that he never quite lets go of, shall we say. <laughs> I mean, there's letters I've seen, you know, there's, I mean, there's letters from him in, you know, in the 2000s when he's writing about the live Quatermass experiment, where he's still furious about uh, the fact that the BBC were the copyright holders of the Quatermass experiment when it went to Hammerfilm, you know. And, and there's about three ex gratia payments. I mean, Raymond Cusick with the Dalek should have been more dogged because quite often the BBC go, we're going to send you another 75 quid, but can, can we now leave this? And then about three years later, it's all right, it's 50 quid. Shut up. <laughs> and with no appreciation that everything the BBC produces is BBC copyright, no matter who, no matter who makes it. You know, it's- yeah. Well, it's, I mean, it's what you, you know, the reality is it's what you, as a freelance, what you give up your pension. Yeah. You know, if you if you if you're a freelancer, you don't have a pension or holiday pay. If you're on staff, you do have those things, but you you give over your rights to them essentially. But it's because it was so yeah. successful. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, and just basically looking at Terry Nation and going, yeah, what you do if you're a freelance yeah. writer and don't give up copyrights to yeah. Your yeah. As it's I, kind of tragic though, because I mean, he is he was totally on a hiding to nothing because. No, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. He yeah. was, he, you know, I remember run, writing the book and having conversations with him still about how, how upset he was about the selling of those rights. And he got his agent to do some research into it and found out how much the BBC uh, had been paid for the rights and found out it was, wasn't very much. <laughs> and then we was obviously offended by the fact it wasn't very much. <laughs> so, it, <laughs> and, uh, you know, no, no one was ever going to win that one, was it? Yeah, it's a bit. It's a bit like when old Doctor Who actors go, "Oh, I wish I kept hold of my scripts because they'd be worth a fortune now." And you sort of go, "No, they wouldn't be really because we've got the episodes and and we've got the episodes. You might make fifty quid at an auction if you're lucky, and they're signed by somebody." And and then they go, 
and then they're disappointed that they haven't missed out on earning a fortune. <laughs> they theoretically could have, could, have, could have done. Is there any parallels in the, to the, is it the mid or early to mid 80s when Sidney Newman went back to the BBC requesting that he was credited as the creator of Doctor Who and they were like, that's not how it works for a BBC employee. Well, yeah, and it's, a, it's and funnily enough, it's a bit like, I'm, I'm very pleased to note that recently the IMDB have removed the showrunner credit that people have gone and given people like Andrew Cartmel because the script editor then is a bit more like the showrunner now, yeah. if you want to see it. So somebody who lives in the internet has gone, I think I shall change all of this on IMDb. And it's, you know, it's wrong. The script editor was a different job then to now, but they weren't the showrunner, although they did have some of the show. But yeah, somebody went and did that. And, and it's sort of retrofitting. It, it's sort of, hindsight is a wonderful thing. And and, and the Quasimass experiment was far more successful than they would have anticipated when they were putting it together at the time but that meant that certain things weren't in place for it being a huge international success because they hadn't accounted for that and it's just sadly one of those one of those things but I'm, I'm just constantly am amused by the doggedness of, of Nigel Neal's fury which which you know it's almost like it's a bit like would you like a cup of tea yes I like tea I like tea more than the fact that I gave my rights away to <laughs> <laughs> But, I mean, it, it's the case, probably. I mean, Quatos Experiment was, was made, not exactly in a rush, but as a stopgap over the summer, wasn't it? When they didn't have the benefit to show, so went to their staff writers and then said, give us a six-week serial. But is that just, that's what to do with just how, how TV was made in the early early 50s. It's, you know, it's, it's relatively raw and, not, not, not amateur, but primitive. In terms of in, in, in terms of its construction, and I suppose part of that is that you don't have time or particularly any inclination to think of the sort of wider cultural impact that anything you broadcast live, like a play, might 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 have. With Greater Mass Experiment, well, as Mark Eddy said, he he goes and invents popular television, yeah. and you know, you're not prepared for all that that all 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 that that brings, and that's that's an obvious consequence. One that is a bugbear to his to his brand. Anyway, that's going way way, way into the future. He, so he approaches the BBC initially to um, be on the production side. When we say production side, like, are we talking? I mean, a director wasn't a credited thing then. Uh, or do we mean as a producer? Or? I will quote you directly. Um, would it be possible for you to interview, have an interview with the aim of working on the production side of television? I am Manx, 28 years old, and my past history is briefly as follows. Two years at RADA, uh, book of short stories, could I refer to you to Mr. P.H. Newby, third programme talks producer? Um, he gives a few, uh, a few references. But yeah, he's saying, I want to work in production. And uh, they write back and say, you specifically asked to be considered for producer. Uh, I've sent it off to uh, the appointments person. Yeah, and they forward it to Michael Barry. So that's how he gets known to Michael Barry. Uh, but it's, a, it's, originally, it's originally about, about becoming a producer. Then Barry reads his short stories and suggests that he should apply for a vacancy on the television training course. But then he ends up, yeah, but because I, I guess they've read his stories and go, oh, you can write, they, uh, he ends up writing scripts. What was the, the BBC output like at, at the time he comes in, in 52? Are we just talking, uh, we're not on telly 24-7, are we? We're in, we're in set hours during, during the, the morning and the evening. There's children's programmes and essentially, presumably, news. And um, stage theatrical reconstructions. Is anything original at this point when he comes into the BBC? I don't think there's a great deal. Uh, they're still at this point. I think basically the, you know, obviously everybody talks about the coronation. Coronation was a big push because they actually started putting in those relay 
transmitters around the country. So that was apart from that's the point when people wanted to watch television and the point when they could. So yeah, as you say, it was kind of a quite a, a basic service and. Well, you know, it'd been around for a while. It was around for a little while before the war. I think it would be wrong to think this was day one. You know, it was a thing. It was a tradition. It just hadn't really kind of grabbed the general public by the throat yet. But before the coronation in 53, there were no relay stations then. It was just so... I think there were a few. I think they were around London, basically. Right. You, so if you're, I mean, I mean, I'm recording this from Muswell Hill. So if you're further from Alexander Palace than that, you might, <laughs> the signal might not be be too good. Exactly. Yeah. So for you guys, either in South Wales or the Northwest, no chance. Television, television, yeah. so regard, no. regardless of the the availability due to due to cost. On the Isle of Man, apparently as well, obviously. So he now comes to work at the BBC in the right in the right department, and that's is that like the what what people who like old telly like we do would describe as a script editor's role, or is that sort of it's a bit more of a factotum of try, trying to find usable scripts, trying to adapt scripts, or or writing brand brand new stories? What was his main mainly his mainly adaptations? I think yeah. an awful lot of sort of you know put a stage hit on the screen, and uh, not not an awful lot of original stuff at that point. No, but he says to Barry that he wants to do original stuff. And Michael Barry says, why don't you adapt some of your short stories? And he says, oh, well, one of them, I, I believe one of them has been done by American television. So I think, I think you know that. Um, <laughs> so, so I think, he's, he, like any writer, you know, I think he's probably, oh, I want to do my own stuff. But um, yeah, I'll, I'll write this I'll write this thing. You chuck me to, to earn a living, you know. It's a way of breaking in. It's like anyone, you know, doing, a, doing an apprentice job before, you know, being allowed to apply a trade as a, as a professional it was a way in i think that's the thing about the quake mass experiment as well isn't it it's like okay there's an emergency somebody writes something and in a quite an opportunistic way rather than saying the simple thing which would you say there's a book over there let's turn it into it's right this is it i'm going to write my own my, my original work it's kind of like jumping in there and seizing that opportunity and turn it into something so yeah those early adaptations, like I know he worked a bit on, I think his credit on Power to the Heart in 52 is additional dialogue, so I think it's the full adaptation. But he works as with other writers on adaptations of his Mystery Story, Cathedral, Number Three. Yeah. Number Three, sorry, we should come to that. Uh, but who chose those stories? Does he just, he goes, right, what's suitable to, to adapt to adapt the limitations to television? Or is he given a short list of, of potential stories or literally just told, go and find, go and find appropriate material? Well, crucially, Arrow to the Heart is... Um... Cartier, uh, and you know that 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 will have helped with sowing the seeds for Quatermass experiment as well. He knew he was working with a producer who sort of trusted him. But uh, Arrow to the Heart was a German story. I think Cartier was quite keen to to bring those sorts of voices to to British television. And it's a play about a young German soldier awaiting execution and the characters that he encounters on that sort of fateful night of countdown. And it's sort of quite tense, but also a, a character study. But it's interestingly for the time um it's german soldiers rather than uh, our own archetypes which of course is quite you know it's quite radical in 1952 and uh, that's influenced by there being a prison of german prison of war camp on the isle of man no it's nothing to know it was cartier, cartier it's influenced by the oh, cartier, an austrian emigre uh, so, so bringing european voices so neil was very much i think just brought in to tart it up uh, it was actually Cartier's adaptation. I think, Andy, is that right? Yeah, that's. I, th- I think Cartier wasn't entirely sure of, of, of his English, apart from anything else. So it's just a case of bringing in a writer who was experienced enough to to sort of polish up the dialogue, really, apart from anything else. But obviously... Um, he's he's waiting to be execu- executed by 
British by by, by uh, the British by, or by Germans? By his own side. By his, okay, that might that might be an especially easier sale for first. Yeah, yeah, he's a German deserter basically, yeah. okay. and, it's, and it's him and the the main character is the I think the padre who is talking him through his his last night, as it were. So of those early, um, this is by the, the the BBC. This is and it's uh, credited on things like IMDb as the BBC Sunday Night Theatre. Is that an actual strand, or is that just a de facto thing for things that went out on Sunday nights in the early fifties? I think it's a strand, isn't it? Would you? Yeah, I think it's a strand, but I, d- I don't know how official. Yeah, I mean, just, Sunday, remember... Sunday night was the time that they had a, a classic adaptation or a. Yeah, I mean, drama. I suppose at that point, you know, with, with sort of programming being not quite as full in terms of the day, mm. uh, is, is it the equivalent of what we call stripped programming now? It was just Sunday night was the night for a drama and whether they called it that or, or whatever, I think that was just the thing. That was just part of the, the, the weekly schedule. So of those those early adaptations for the Sunday Theatre, what do we know about what was done? Does the, to the script, did the script survive? Was there much to, much to say about them? Uh, I don't know that the scripts have survived, Toby, unless you know otherwise. Well, they did. They did Arrow to the Heart again um, about five years later. It's done again in 1958, something like that. Yeah. There's, um, no, no, there's no known recordings of these. These are all just live, not like the first two Quedex experiments. There's no recordings. They, they're live, they're ephemeral, they go out. And if you do it again, you literally have to get the actors together again. Uh, oh, well, yeah, there's, there's that. There's, I mean, the, the first Arrow to the Heart was done twice on the Sunday and on the Thursday, but then they do it again in 1956. So not only was it done again as part of its original production, they then used the same script with a different cast, not an entirely different cast, but with a partially different cast four years later, because in those days, of course, instead of doing a repeat because they didn't keep anything, they'd occasionally use a script they'd used before because nobody's going to go, hang on, didn't I see this play in 1952? Um, so um, it was it was a good way of of Bloody repeat again, but actually it did. Martin Starkey played the private both times, so you know some of the some of the and, and Robert Harris played the padre both times. So it was the same same main players, but it was it was a different production. It's kind of a restaging, isn't it? A, a reman, yeah. Was it Cartier again? Did he did he yeah. helm it again? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So when does Neil's first original work come in at this at, at this at this stage? Well, again, if it depends whether we're about, talking about television or radio, because he does can, a radio piece. Called, so the radio is, is his first original piece once, once employed by the BBC. Yeah, which is you must listen, which is kind of much more, you know, a lot of the stuff he was he was working on at that time was adapting other people's stuff, and it's kind of interesting if you're as fascinated in it as we are, but maybe you can't see a natural lineage from that stuff to. Nigel Neal as we we know and love him but yeah You Must Listen is is very much an early example of the Nigel Neal story that we all uh, adore so much it's about haunting it's about haunted telephone line can you give us a quick crazy of what that is yeah so I think the original title was Passion Fruit because it's in an office and somebody keeps fights I think this is quite a common thing at the time you know there would be a cross line or or whatever the, the terminology would be there'd be a voice on the line but this voice is basically uh, a very, very anxious woman petitioning somebody at the other end of the line to, to be with her and just literally an incessant voice saying, you know, we've got to be together, we've got to be together. Uh, and passion fruit is, is the kind of uh, the pet name that he has for her, but you never hear, hear him. 
So it's kind of a story of, you can easily draw parallels to things like the stone tape because it, you know, they literally get somebody in to try and fix the telephone line. I think it's cross line. What's this all about? And then somebody happens to know the story of, oh, actually somebody who worked here was having an affair with a woman. So basically it turns out to be a haunted line, which is kind of uh, ultimately switched off. Do you have the script for that? Yes. Did, 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 not, actually did, got, did Nigel Neal get himself give it to you? <laughs> well, I, I personally took it from his house. I don't know if that counts. But I've actually got as well the audience. Yeah. So this was um, after it went out. Transcribed from a tel- I can't even pronounce that telediphone recording. That must have been some terminology from the time. So this is basically feedback about the play. Uh, this is about audience feedback. Yeah. I, well, so, no. So this is. Um, this is basically a kind of, you know, this, this is a radio show uh, where people talk about radio shows that they have seen. Oh, okay. This is, okay. This, this, this is, this is like Chris Chibnall slacking off Pip and Jane Baker to, uh, to, to their faces, or this is all, all like our points of view. That sort of yeah, yes, yeah, so that sort of thing. So it's, it's called the, the, the Critics. Right. Uh, the Critics heard You Must Listen by Nigel Neal broadcast on Monday, the 8th, 2nd of August. So it's basically people talking about that. And they're saying it was a ghost story and fittingly for radio the ghost was not an apparition but a voice a solicitor has a telephone installed in his new office birch is uh summarizing it far better than i did and whenever the receiver is taken off the voice of a woman is heard pleading ever more hysterically with her love just as if the lines were crossed the most exhaustive tests and searches reveal nothing wrong with the line nothing can be but it does gradually transpire that the solicitor's premises has previously been occupied by a bogus travel agency run by a cad who had decamped with the cash and that his girlfriend had committed suicide. Uh, amusingly, though, a lot of the um, uh, newspaper coverage at the time, which also it's a very good play, but a lot of them go, and young, young writer Nigel Neal was uh, brought up to speed by the experienced producer, uh, Ronald Rakes, whatever he's got, uh, because Mr. Neal had wanted to call it, what was it, Passion Fruit? Passion Fruit. Uh, but his more experienced producer said that that was not such a good title. So you can see, you can probably see Nigel Neal. So here we are. The title was chosen by the producer, Raymond Rakes, who considered it better than the author's own choice, Passion Fruit, the name given by baffled television engineers to the mystery voice of a lovesick woman. Um, so you can see him go, why aren't you, why are you writing about the producer changing the title <laughs> rather than my play? But it, it got some good. Morris Richardson, I think Morris Richardson wrote for The Observer, said it was written by Mr. Nigel Neal with a sublime disregard for plausibility and a very close regard for the possibilities of radio. And, you know, spooky, spooky. Was there much crossover between telly and radio in, in those days in terms of who was, was working? Presumably all, all radio adaptations were, were done by a different script unit or were they, was, was he responsible for that as well? As yeah, I, I certainly don't think this was part of his remit of, mm. of working for the script unit. This was just a case of, oh, I quite fancy writing a radio play and sort of making contacts. And, and it was kind of an unconnected thing. And obviously also the allure of being able to write a, a, an original piece when he's, he's kind of at that time adapting other people's work. You know, this is kind of going back to what he's doing in, in Tomato Kane of telling stories, which he isn't really getting to do at that time on television because he's just telling other people's stories. So was that his only other radio play? I yeah. know, as we'll probably cover, Stone Tape and The Road have been, have been adapted for radio. Yeah, um, and the, as we might the, Quater, later. the Quatermass memoirs much later if you count that. But yeah, yeah no, certainly this didn't lead to anything else at the time. So what was his first original work then for, for television? Um, presumably is also lost. 
Uh, well, it's the, the Quatermass experiment. Oh, okay. So he did. So, so all the work he did on um, something like theatre up to this, uh, up to the Quatermass experiment, was just adaptations. Yeah, just adaptations, sort of novels and plays and other people's work. Nothing, nothing original there. So, uh, so yeah, like I say, it's kind of jumping into the into the gap and writing. Did that? Story. Did then the did then the success of the Quatermass experiment give him greater clout in being able to say, I want to do my own things, or? Well, it's interesting because while he's doing Quatermass Experiment, a BBC radio producer called Charles Lefeu writes to him and says, I like you must listen. I know you're tied up with this television thing, but once that's over, I'd love it if you could write for Steam Radio. And he writes back and goes, oh, yes, I'd, I'd love to. Um, that would be terrific. Um, and then, of course, the Quatermass Experiment happens, and I think he's going, well, bugger that. I'm, I, I don't, they're going to make this into a feature film. It's going to make me rich. <laughs> <laughs> so his 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 exit from the BBC is still uh, a little a little time off because that's when yeah. the BBC sells yeah. sell, sell the rights of Wet Experiment to, to Hammer. But he still continues to work on, on something like theatre. Does he do any more original work then? The Quatermass Experiment clearly is a, a game changer for his career. But I don't, I don't you know, he's still doing that, those adaptations. I think possibly more than anything, the Quatermass experiment is about the fact that, you know, between him and Carte, there is a team. The BBC recognise that, okay, these guys are good at doing things together. So, you know, they, they've been trying for some time to get a, an adaptation of 1984 off the ground. And then they think, okay, these guys can do it. Let's ask these. And the creature really is, is the next, next kind of original piece that he writes. And again, that's sort of with Carte. So I think it's, it, it, it forges them as a team rather than him as an original writer. Okay, so the the nine twenty four adaptation is given to Cartier and Neil because it's sci fi, and, and they're <laughs> apparently they, they, yeah. they, they do sci fi. Um, yeah, apparently it's like the Quatermass experiment in some way that I cannot explain, but somebody at the BBC was convinced that this was the proof that they were the one. I think the way Neil put it was something like they thought we were future creatures. So, but, uh, <laughs> I think that's interesting in itself, though, that, and and this kind of comes up quite a lot in his, his career. That I think he didn't like that, you know, and and he, he kind of always rankled against this idea that he was a horror writer or a science fiction writer or any kind of genre writer. And even if you go back to Tomato Kane, it's, the stories are a real mixture of sort of fantastical stories. Some of them are quite sort of supernatural, and some of them are just stories about the Isle of Man. But doesn't actually say it explicitly. So it's I think like there is, it's not like there is genre television. There's just, no, there's just, absolutely. there's just telly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I think um, we've, I think we've covered at the time of it. Of course, you, you can't look at the Quatermass experiment like Blake Seven or a yeah, sci-fi series. It's like Line of Duty. It's like popular. Good, yeah, and, 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 and 1984 was a you know a, a great piece of literature. It wasn't you know yeah. we lock it in now with you know yes it's a dystopian vision of the future so. People who like sci-fi kind of like it, but it was, you know, it was a recently published successful grim novel from a, you know, famous writer. So, so the fact that we can now sort of retrofit it to go, well, it's the same sort of genre as as Quatermass. Um, it, you know, it, it wasn't necessarily in in that sense. Um, it's just you've got a successful team bringing a controversial and difficult novel to the screen. Do we know whose idea it was to to, to commission the um, adaptation? Um, I don't offhand, and but it, it, but it, it wasn't. It wasn't Carter. specifically. No. Okay. No, I think it was offered to that. I, there had been a script by somebody else. I think. I think they've been talking doing a radio version, and I think somebody else had written a television script. But it was kind of seen as this. You know, we've not cracked this yet. 
When you read things in the Radio Times now, and it sort of goes top ten TV cults or whatever, and it goes quite, you know, Quatermass cult TV. And as we all know, it wasn't cult TV. It's an easy label to give it if you're writing a puff piece for the Radio Times or whatever. But but Quatermass was mass television. It's only now that, that you, you can't talk seriously about, you can't make a documentary about an old television programme unless you describe it as a cult for some reason, which is why not, not so long ago, but, uh, did we have the, the you know, the, the, they had those, the cult of star cops and the cult of survivors. Oh, do watch uh, one, I remember, yes. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, and you go, well, uh, uh, it's just that we have to package these things because we think, we, you know, the television thinks people are so stupid, unless they're all packaged into a generic sort of box altogether, people would be too stupid to, to, to watch them. And so it's an odd label to attach. And, and one that Neil never quite escaped from, and I think, you know, slightly resented, although he then, a, a, a bit like this in the newer thing, he did keep going back to, Qua he was sort of, I'm not the Quatermass guy, but I've got this Quatermass thing. And I remember Andrew Pixie tells a lovely story, but I think they were doing a retrospective of Neil's work. And, uh, and Andrew had, for some film festival, and Andrew had said, we're going to get, if it wasn't Wuthering Heights, it was, because I don't know if they've got the Wuthering Heights, it was, but it was something, it was something, it was, it was some, some period piece. Uh, and they said, we're going to show that, because nobody ever watches that. And he was really excited. And went, oh, that's, that's a brilliant idea. I'd love to talk about something other than Quasimass. Then the week before he rang up, I went, can you just show the film of Quasimass in the pit, actually? <laughs> because actually that's, that's what he was. So it was, it was almost like he, he created a monster that would, uh, that would define and destroy him. Uh, and, and not make him as much money as he wanted. Yeah, yeah. I don't want to spend too much time on on nine thirty four, not least of which because it's it's not missing. But I suppose even it... <laughs> interestingly, the the nineteen the, the remake was for a very long time. Oh, the the, uh, the sixty five one. Yeah, and he'd yeah. always said, "Oh, it's it's nothing like as good," so we'd not really cared about it that much. Then it turned up, and it's actually it's really good. Um, okay. And I think if you divorce it from the original, um, it's you know it's a it's a it's a very good production, and there's a few changes script-wise, and I think he felt that the acting wasn't as good, but actually I think the acting is decent, and Joseph O'Connor's really good as O'Brien. I think when you've made something so impressive that, that you know, the second time is never going to be quite so good, but I think that, that, that second version that was missing for many years, when it turned up, it, I think it, I think it was a pleasant surprise. It was for me. I don't know about you, Andy. Mm, yeah, absolutely. Vernon Dobchev's decision to play Goldstein like a goat uh, is... Uh, <laughs> Is is actually more faithful to the book, I think, but it, it's it's an odd, it's an odd, it's an odd moment. Anyway, uh, that's not missing, so I'll shut up. That's right. Um, I presume they've never been released because there's still um, never been a, a deal done with Orwell's estate. We, we were working on a release of it for the BFI when we did Out of the Unknown, and we had Judith Kerr interested in doing the commentary, and Andre Morel's son Jason and. Yvonne Mitchell's daughter, who's a theatre director, Claudia Monzi. And, and we were like, oh, brilliant. Somebody's obviously sorted the rights to this because we know this is a nightmare to release, but the big fight, I think, hadn't realised. So just going, oh, yeah, go ahead with that. So we gone, well, when we didn't go, are you sure? Have you checked? Because we assumed, I think, they had. And then the Orwell estate just going, no, we want, we want all this for it. And then we're going, but the copyright's going to run out soon. So do it now for this or we'll just have to wait. 
uh, and then do it anyway. So, um, so we did try, uh, and Peter Crocker did a beautiful cleanup. The film is gorgeous, but no, it's the Orwell estate um, being tucked with the rights. Do we know when that runs out? Yeah, really soon. <laughs> okay, so let's get back on track with um, what was the next original missing thing that that Nigel that Nigel did after Quatermass Experiment or um, eighty four. Oh, the creature, I guess. It was the creature. Now, the creature is, has a, probably a, a higher profile than other stuff he did from this time because Hammer also from that as well. So he's still a BBC employer, employee, sorry, mm-hmm. uh, at, yeah. at, at, at this stage. The BBC also presumably sell the copyrights for the script to Hammer, mm-hmm. but unlike Quatum's experiment, and he writes the script for Hammer, is that right? Yes. Yeah. So um, what's the time? What's the time? He writes, he writes the creature... Presumably, the BBC hasn't yet sold the um, the rights to the Quatermass experiment to Hammer yet. I, yeah, I think it comes out. Doesn't it come out just around about the same time as the Quatermass? It comes out at the same time. Oh. Yeah, but where it comes out, it's also broadcast and made at the, at the, at the yeah, yeah. <laughs> on 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 the day. Obviously, yeah. some rehearsal work goes 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 into it. It's not like there's there's a long recording that delayed until you release it. I mean, was it? It wasn't sold as a as a job lot, or it was done. It was done. There's a whole story about him being offered a new contract, and he said that he had a, fi- a filing cabinet full of unsigned, unreturned contracts sent to him by the BBC that yeah. they wanted. So, and I guess this this was after the the Quatermass experiment debacle. When he finally signs it, I think it, the terms are much more in his favour. I have it here. The, the terms of the new contract are agreed that the contract should be made retrospective to cover the creature in regard to after rights. Right. So, he's, you know, he's, he's got an eye on, on yeah. that already. Nigel Neal himself says, as three film offers have now appeared, can you please arrange for a quick confirmation of your verbal assurance that the after rights in this play would belong to me? It was, after all, upon this assurance that I went ahead and wrote the play last November. This is February 55, he's writing this. On November the 12th, I wrote a note to explaining that I could not continue working on original plays on my existing contract without any breach of which I would have reserved the saleable ideas embodied in the creature to myself and carried on with ordinary adaptation work. So he's basically said to the BBC, if if I'm going to carry on writing stuff for you under my contract, I'll adapt Wuthering Heights all you like. But if I've got a brilliant fertile sci-fi idea, I'm keeping that to myself in case Hammer want to turn it into a film. Okay, so how... I presume you have the scripts for the original... Yeah, if, I mean, anyone that's seen the Hammer movie of yeah, the, uh, I was going to ask how similar re- really isn't missing much in terms of the the production. The Hammer, the the TV version is essentially the Hammer film without Richard Wattis and Maureen because the the Hammer film cuts back to Richard Wattis and, and Maureen Connell uh, uh, talking to the Llama. Those characters aren't there, uh, and interestingly, the ca- some of the character names are, are different in the TV version, and you think, oh, have they? Have they changed those characters to, to make them, you know? So I think the the the, the character that's played by Robert Brown in the in the movie, who's the sort of mouthy American hunter, yeah, yeah. Uh, the sidekick of Forrest Tucker's character, mm. is called Pierre Brosset in the in the television version. You go, oh, have they just changed Brosset into a, a mouthy American for the film? No, in the in the existing script of the television version, the characters have the names they have in the film, but obviously then when Cartier cast Eric Pullman and Simon Lack, they changed the names of the characters they were to play. So oh, the film is actually closer to the characters originally conceived by 
Neil than the television version, which we can't see would have been. What we miss from the telly version compared to the film version is pro likely to have been different performances from Stanley Baker, who was a yeah. big booking for telly, mm -hmm. um, uh, and Forrest Tucker in, in the movie. Uh, although Neil was a big fan of, uh, for, for, for a change for an American import into one of his British characters. Um, he liked Tucker's performance in, in the movie, but said it was a different performance to, to the one Baker gave. And of course they had the famous story of the, uh, the now he did embellish stories, but Judith told me the story as well, but she referred to the man as a little man. It sounded to me a bit like Nigel talking. So I don't <laughs> know if Judith was sort of quoting Nigel, but about the, that when there's scenes going on between Peter Cushing and uh, Stanley Baker in the cave and they're the last two left and they're, they're about to see the creature that some BBC Jobsworth starts sweeping up uh, during the I, live. I've heard the story, but yes, uh, uh, and, and they hit, you know, they go that so, and then when they do the remount four days later, uh, he, he does it again. <laughs> now, I, I suspect that him doing it again is, is, embellishing it in a da in, to have a slightly sort of dour, Richard, yeah. comically downbeat ending, which I think was his sense of humour. But certainly, you sus you suspect if yeah, if it had been recorded, that that first performance had been recorded, you might have seen a, a little man sweeping up. Uh, but uh, uh, we can't see it because it doesn't exist. Yeah, looking at those, I mean, the cast list of this, those early TV stuff as well, you see other people walk, went on the 84, you know, scenes with Do Donald Pleasant and Stanley Baker on telly. He's um, something you don't think of when you think of the best movie stars, because that, yeah, that's what survives. Well, and I've, I've got a feeling that, that Baker is billed in the Radio Times as by arrangement with the rank organisation or something, but it wasn't unusual for that to appear certainly happens with Patrick Weimark in The Playmakers. He's always appearing by association with, with somebody else. So uh, I used to like it on uh, radio plays or, or TV plays sometimes when they do a voiceover. They go, Stephen Moore is a member of the Royal Shakespeare Company, yeah. uh, uh, which they don't do anymore, which is a shame. But yes, Baker was big billing. The other thing about the creature is, of course, the, um, the achievement of the towering Yeti creature, which I believe... I think they had another camera on a small person yes. dressed in Peter Cushing's costume. A small uh, person as opposed to a little person. A small, no, as well, I, I'm, I'm trying to use the correct nomenclature to, to increase the height of yeah. what the creature would look like towering over uh, Peter Cushing's character, uh, who's called John Rollison, which is also the name of the guy who plays Harold Chorley in The Web of Fear. So, <laughs> I was, uh, anyway. So with, I, that, with that Yeti connection in mind, um, was like when uh, none of this was taken into account then when they were when they were making Abominable Snowmen or as to, to how to make a, a Yeti appear terrifying or casting Wolf Morris obviously is there. Uh, yes was there I mean because yes because Wolf Morris who is in the TV version of the creature and the film version, version is called the Abominable Snowmen is in the Doctor Who story sorry. the Abominable Snowmen but this time he plays the Llama who yes. is played by Arnold Marl in the in the film and TV version of the creature. It's all no, very I, confusing and slightly incestuous. I, I was just wondering, was there any, obviously the, the production team on Doctor Who, the Abominable Snowman, would have been 
would have been aware of it would have been aware of, of, of this and just whether there was any uh, whether Gerald Blake had any idea of like he, how he would did that influence anyway how it was made it just I don't recall there being anything about uh, using using a shorter actor to make the, the Yeti appear taller and, and, and more terrifying in Doctor Who yes well, well we see in the creature you could do it because it was only one you know they're, they're very much limited how much you saw of the creature because it's not really about no the abominable snowman it's about the the it's a, it's again it's about sort of ancient terror uh and the reveal is held back yeah so 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 it's only i mean technically thematically it's not as present but also in terms of actually physically it's only one shot it's the money shot as it were whereas in the doctor who story they're all over the place so you can and i love the idea that they might have gone oh let's cast wolf morris in a hark back to the classic 1954 teleplay by Nigel. i suspect wolf morris's agent just rang up and goes he does good tibetan you know uh, and they went, oh, all right then. He has that sheen. Yeah, he's a, well, I mean, you, you go through some of those old spotlights and it yeah. says, foreigners are speciality. <laughs> uh, so, uh, you know, they probably won't. we know somebody who does a foreigners, and if it says open brackets Tibetan, he's going to be <laughs> our guy. Yes, he plays someone of, un, uh, of potentially problematic but uncertain origin. Is it in Buddy Boy and Beasts? Yeah, yeah, that's he worked and he's in uh, the Nigel Neal play The Crunch as well. Yes, uh, he is. Yes, yes, you're right. And, yeah. and he's one of the food throwers in The Year of the Sex, Sex Olympics. Olympics. But that's because he was a big collaborator of Michael Elliott, who co founded the Royal Exchange Theatre up here. And one of the other food fighters is Graham Murray, who was one of the, the main directors uh, here at the Royal Exchange. So that was more a, a Manchester Royal Exchange connection rather that's than a, a Nigel Neal. Is that Trevor Peacock's best ever credit? Custom yes. by fight arranged by. Yeah, yeah. So the marvelous one there as well. So, at what point does Nigel Neal leave the BBC? In terms of staff, or in terms so of staff, it, yeah. I know he works, and I know he he does later work for BBC as yeah. in, in freelance. So that when does when that later contract elapses? So I think yeah. that covers everything up to. So that that contract was February '55. Yeah, I think Mrs. Wickens is probably covered by it, and that's probably it. Does that sound about right? Mrs. Wickens isn't until after Quatermass Two, though, is it? Yeah. So he does Quatermass Two as a staff or as a freelance? I think he's staff. I think that that contract you've got there, Toby, so you know about the meat. Whether that covers Creature and Quatermass Two almost as two Quatermass Two as two works within terms of the contract. I think that's correct. Yeah, I mean it's awkward because I, I've I've got all this paperwork here, but it's going to be very boring listening to me leafing through it. But uh, there's there's a very nice memo from Michael Barry who perhaps sums it up by going, "I'm getting very tired of this matter. It <laughs> seemed to me could have been settled without much complication." So I think there is special dispensation when it comes to Quatermass Two. And he sees, uh, and the creature, because they're original ideas, he sees out his contract and then goes, well, I think everyone's a bit pissed off then. And, and yeah. you know, they go. And to... that is the case that he owns Quatermass 2 in a way that he doesn't, he didn't. Yeah. So was he involved then in the rights negotiations for Hammer for Quatermass 2? Because he works on the script with, with uh, or does, does Val Guest just rewrite the script that he gives them? Oh, lots of debate about that. Val okay. Guest thought he did, Nigel Neal thought he didn't. What, the, the creature? No, Quatermass 2 film. Ah, well... Nigel Neal, Nigel Neal thinks that Val Guest was on the golf course too much to actually write a script. I think that's the that's his line. Okay, so when Mrs Wickens and the Fool, then, is written as a as a freelance writer? Yes. Yeah, it would be then, yeah. Because that's, that's 
Oh, no, sorry, that's before Pitt, isn't it? Pitt's yes, end of, end of in between the two, yeah. yeah. So his last work on the Sunday Night Theatre strand is Mrs. Wickens and the Fall. Yes. Is that particularly significant as an original piece of work, or is it um, an adaptation? It's, yeah, I, I think it's... Uh, so going back to what we were saying earlier i think it's significant as one of those examples of him saying i'm not just somebody who writes sci-fi kind mm. of i write i can write this as well and it's so it's, it's a bit of a tragedy really because he was so good at that genre stuff mm. and everything else he wrote that wasn't was perfectly good but i don't think you'd be doing a you know a podcast on mrs wickens all these years later if it wasn't for the other stuff do you want to say what it's about yeah, so it's, it's kind of about an American, elderly American couple go on a holiday. Mrs. Wickens is the wife. Uh, she has a fall in the autumn. See what he's done there. And so they're sort of holed up in this, ho- in this hotel and they become aware that within this community in the Loire Valley, the, uh, there is a boy whose father was a German soldier and he's kind of shunned he's, he's within the community. And it's, it's all basically about the aftermath of the Second World War and the sort of lingering sort of elements of that the end of the story is that the Wickenses agree to adopt the child and take him back to America so it's quite a gentle story uh and it, it's significant in that I think more and more through his career the shadow of the second world war is more and more important you know down to the point where the very last thing he writes which is that Kavanaugh QC episode is it, it, about that uh and obviously it's very a subject very close to his heart because of his wife's experience um, and I think more and more his fascination with the Second World War comes out. And that's a very early, very clear and strong early example of that. And it's good. It's just not fascinating in the way that some of his other stuff is, I think. And you have the script. Presumably you've never seen the creature, but you've read but you, but you, yeah. you, you, the script. In particular, you, you sort of take from it. Or... Well, like I said before, the, the thing I really like about it is that it's called the creature. As but opposed can... to the abominable snowman, you, yeah. where, where there is a preconceived idea of what that then may be well you, well you can see that calling it the abominable snowman flags up quite clearly <laughs> what you're going to end up seeing in this film whereas the creature is much more you know, what who, who or what is the creature is it the yeti is it the hunter is it the scientist it's kind of the same thing that he ends up doing with beasts where he kind of cut you know it's a well who who are we the beasts is the most obvious thing but also the fact that creature was a term that he, he liked to to use personally <laughs> In what, in what context? It's interesting. Judith Kerr did a book called, uh, is it called Judith Kerr's Creatures? And she says that in, in the family, they used it to talk about members of the family. I, I think it's one of those words, kind of can't think of an equivalent. I guess every family has, has one where you use it. It's basically an insult, but you use it in an affectionate way. Certainly, I only ever heard him use it when he was talking about people who work for Hammer, BBC executives. It's, it's, he didn't mean it kindly if he called you a creature. So, so I love the fact that he, he calls it that. But then, obviously, the film is much more bang on the nose by the abominable snow. Yeah, you could, he'd use it for a sort of particular sort of piece of BBC middle management. He'd say, and then, you know, it's a particular sort of creature does that job. But I remember saying to Judith, you know, that creature was a very nigel word to describe something he didn't like and she said oh no she said a creature she was so lovely she said oh no a creature could be a nice thing as well you know a sort of so so i think maybe the sort of yin and yang of the the neil kerr axis was that the word creature in judith's hand was a rather charming sort of thing and in night in nigel neil's hand it was this sort of awful grotesque thing i, I draw parallels between um 
sometimes Nigel Neal and Peter Hitchens, who who I think have a similar sort of way of expressing things, and some 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 uh, I think a shared physiognomy in places as well. Mm. And I know that Hitchens, Hitchens is not a bad understander of popular culture whatever you think of his politics, but he refers to Tony Blair as that Blair creature. Uh, and, it, and, it, and, it, and they use a sort of similar vocabulary in times. So I always think of, of Peter Hitchens when I hear Nigel Neal describe anything as a creature. It, uh, it, got, it got mixed reviews, the play. And it's interesting that um, Stanley Baker was the star, but Peter Cushing gets lots of the good notices from the TV people. So it's interesting seeing Cushing star in The, the Ascendants. In terms of Nigel Neal at the BBC, in 1955, June 1955, which is sort of the end of his BBC file, so that's when he sort of stops being staff, um, Michael Barry says, we do not intend to repeat the creature by Nigel Neal before the 31st of January 1956. This production was not an outstanding success and we are prepared to release it. So that's him after all this sort of fighting with contracts about, you know, who's going to be allowed to exploit what you. Yeah, well, I'm very good anyway. You can have it. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I think it was quite a big old press for them. But, uh, but I mean, some, some people liked it. Most people in the press sort of go, the thing about the Abominable Snowmen is it's better if you don't know what it is. So their whole basis of what plays that actually that, you know, trying to solve that mystery then, takes away the unique selling point of what the abominable snowman is which is that it's a mystery i'd still i i still think it would be interesting to see it and and it wasn't not recorded you know it was recorded so it could be out there somewhere but um unlikely if they were happy to release it who then did the negotiations with hammer for the film was that neil probably or the neil BBC, so the bbc received no money for that no, it, it seems to be that it, it, one of his stipulations was that if he was writing an original work in The Creature, he could commercially exploit that. Wow, interesting. Um, okay, so everything after that is now as a, as a freelance. He comes back and does, does Pitt as, as a freelance. But is, I mean, this is also at the brink of when he's breaking into films, isn't it? I know he does, he does some corporate thing, doesn't he, in America or for some steel company? Is that right, Andy? Something that you well, it's um, which one? It's Mrs. Wickens is bought by uh, an American. Uh, oh, they buy it and show it as okay. He doesn't write it for them. It's a new. Or, no, no. Okay. Gotcha. It's renamed the Littlest Enemy, and it's literally, it literally. I've got the the script for as it goes out, and it literally sort of you know have a bit of story, and then it stops for a bit. It, it was broadcast under the United States Steel Hour, so have a bit of story, and then it stops and tells you how great the United States Steel is, and then goes back to the story. Can you imagine he wasn't very happy about that? I bet he, I bet he wasn't. <laughs> he had done that before, I think. The Affair at Athena, which is one of his earlier kind of adaptations, not something he, you know, something he adapted for somebody else's work, was sold to America and remade there. And I think that was his first kind of inkling of what goes on beyond the initial writing of scripts and sort of what, what, how it can be exploited. And, and how blessed he is by our, by our glorious public service broadcaster that is the BBC and its, its lack of adverts and... Yeah. Control. Okay, so then, um, so if he's done uh, Pitt as as a, as a freelance writer, so was that presumably not there wasn't too it wasn't there was bad blood, but it was both we both have a valuable property we can still work on this, or was it? Uh, I think it, the story is that he had an office that a television centre. <laughs> they basically let him come and go and use an office, so on staff. But he's working as part of a team, isn't he? And so he's working well, as part. And also, I think sometimes what paperwork doesn't tell us, and, and we like a sort of scandal and a brouhaha, 
uh, is that you can have legal and financial disagreements and, and have somebody fighting your corner. Your everyday interaction can be cordial and convivial. I suspect if you, you know, if you followed the, the paperwork of, of, of any acting or writing engagement I've had, you've probably got my agent going, I'll sort this and try this and blah, 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 blah. But, you know, I turn up on the day and I smile and shake hands and it's all nice enough because they're different conversations and different interactions. So what might on paper seem a bit stark and businesslike and sort of a, a knocking of heads is actually very far away from the, the reality of those people interacting as people. So you might have had a, a sort of legal set of legal and financial disagreements with the BBC, but that doesn't mean that they didn't get on and he didn't value them and blah, 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 you know. They're very different conversations. And I think we sometimes miss that when we discuss old television that we understand through memos, that, uh, that, that those that's very different languages are spoken to, to how people sort of interact on a day-to-day -day basis. Yeah, and I think those people he was butting heads with wouldn't have been the people that he was going to see when he came in to make something anyway. So it wasn't like, you know, there was any risk of him bumping into somebody in the corridor. That was kind of a, a different thing, isn't it? It's more... Yeah. The day-to-day, -day, I think he said something about, you know, the BBC was full of wonderful people on, on the floor, don't go upstairs. That's not a, a, <coughs> a, a unique position to have for, for, for creative sort of uh, in regards to the BBC, though, is it? He's also at this stage starting to break into films, though, isn't he? He's, I mean, whether that's fueled by the success of his Hammer film, so he, he has credit, but he does like Down the Defiant with uh, Lewis Gilbert. He does the first two Woodfall films uh, with... Tony Richardson. Does he now think that this is this is going to be the future? That working in films is now how it, how it will be, or um, is it just a case of a case a case of opportunism? These offers are coming up, so this this is this is what I'll work on. Yeah, I think it's a bit of both. Sort of coupled with the, how hacked off he was with the BBC, it must have just seemed like oh, I'll go off and do this now. But in practice, you know, there are lots and lots of scripts that you know he did have a so few film credits in the sixties. There are lots of scripts he wrote that never got made, which is just the way it is with with the film world, I suppose. And I always think it must have been a hell of a gear change to go from you know you consider with the Quatermass experiment that he was writing the final episodes when the first episode was going out. And there's the, all those stories, I think it's in the script book when he sort of writes a little introduction to it, you know, looking out across London at all the aerials and thinking, those people watching us tonight, you know, as you're going home from work, those people watching us tonight. And the immediacy of that, to go from that to, on the one hand, prestigious film work, you're getting well paid, he's got a family by that point, he's got, you know, kids to support and everything, he's married. So yeah, great, you're putting food on the table, but you're adapting other people's work and in most cases, like, you can get made. Yeah. So how frustrating that must be. So I would have thought that, you know, I would read into that, that the 60s is kind of a process of him being drawn back into sort of working with the BBC just because, well, he can, he can create things and they'll get made. Well, that's it. I mean, to, for all the BBC's faults, to be fair to the BBC, if they commission you to make something, they generally, you generally know it's going to be made. Whereas with films, that's not the case at all, you know. Um, and it's much easier to write something if you if you know that the day's work you're doing today is actually going to achieve fruition. It's much harder to write something that's a speculative project, whether you're being paid for it or not. But the grass is always greener, you see. Yes, yeah, I suppose. Although I'm, I'm amused by, again, not, not directly relevant, the Jimmy Sangster's story of like, going to a party in Hollywood and saying, oh, how many, how many scripts have you written? And going, oh, seven or eight, I think. And them saying, yeah, but how many got made? He was like, seven or eight? 
The idea, <laughs> the idea Hammer would pay me and not make this film, that's, that's, yeah. that's ridiculous, which wasn't a doubt word. But then, no, that's, that's, that was different for Sangster, who was essentially, was stuck with staff. When does he first then start writing for ITV? Does that come later? Does that come into the... Into well, the, the crunch is for ITV, but it's kind of a one-off. It's, it's not really until the mid-70s that it kind of kicks off as a, as a thing. So the crunch is, what, 64? 64, yeah. And is that part of a... I know it's a one-off, but is that part of a, um, an anthology? I don't think so. Uh, it's just a case there were more things like there were more just one-off dramas. Than, 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 than. Yeah, it, it was a bit of a big deal, wasn't it? It was a kind of Nigel Neal's writing for ITV. It was a, he was the draw, you know. He was the that was Michael Elliott, wasn't it? Yeah. So that was that was that him being approached saying, "Come on, do do something for us," or was he wanting to get back into telly and thinking like the ITV uh, networks might be a, a, a Elliott? Sorry, Elliot Neal. I was just thinking, oh, okay. well. was he approached yeah, by yeah. someone like Michael Elliott? Or, yeah, no, I, I suspect he was just, just asked, really. But that comes after The Road, though, which was 63. Okay, all right, then we'll, then we'll, then we'll, we'll go on a bit. So, I suppose then it's an easy one to go around it. Um, the Road, um, was that, that was part of something called First Night, is that right? Yes. And what defined First Night as part of this anthology? What, what does that essentially mean? I think they were just original. It was a Sidney Newman initiative, I think, wasn't okay. it? When he sort of came and rejigs everything, he one of the things amongst other things that he, he kind of instigated was this new strand of original dramas. I think that's that's just in, in the name is is all it's it all it is is a is a but like but like largest theatre in the world or theatre six six two five, it's invoking quality by saying it's like the first night of play. Exactly, that's, yeah. That's the film as well. Okay, as well. So and that he does his arguably most famous missing story um, for those people, although it's missing, we won't go through the plots and if both, if you don't know the twist, it, it's worth it because there is a modern adaptation of it. Toby, you, you adapted The Road for, yes. for, for, for radio. No, is that just, how does that come about? That is something you wanting to do well, re recreating something missing good. I've got three things, one of them might be the road. Or was it always, uh, if we do something, I want to be the road. Was it trying to get the road made in any medium whatsoever or was it commissioned as a radio? Well, I, 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 something that had always been talked about. And I know, um, I know Mark Gatiss had tried to have it done for telly and I think got quite reasonably far. Uh, and, and, and I think it, it was scuppered largely because uh, Nigel Neal had cold feet again, wasn't it? Rather than as much as anything else. I think, um, he hadn't wanted it to be a, uh, have too much adaptation done to it. Maybe wrong on that, but is that your take on that, Andy? Yeah, that's the story. I think they, that uh, Mark Casey's met up with with Nigel Neal and talked him through it, and sort of said, "Oh, you know, obviously we'll have to update it." And this got Nigel Neal's something was going to get his back up. This is what got his back up. This, why do you need to update it? It's set hundreds of years ago. So that that straight away was his alarm bell, and and that that's kind of where the cold feet kicked in. Was the twist at the end was the, the future pain was an incompetent government while we're all stuck under a pandemic and like, <laughs> absolute absolute idiot. Absolute I, I idiot think more, more update the sort of storytelling and streamline it and yeah. you know shorten the dialogue and that sort of thing. Whereas uh, my, my, the, the way my version came about was simply because I'd suggested it to her. But I think before I'd had my dad who fell in between my sake my Doctor Who scarf and the dad who fell to earth. There was a big gap between those because I sort of dropped the ball and was doing other things. Uh, but in that gap, I'd suggested the road and I don't think she'd even responded much particularly uh, or that idea didn't get much traction and I wrote something else. 
and I thought nothing more of it. I thought, oh, maybe she doesn't fancy it. Or, and, I, and I knew that the rights were, you know, impossible. I knew, I knew that because that was the, the wisdom of the time. Um, and then I did a play called The Dad Who Fells to Earth, which did very well. And she said, send me some more ideas. And I sent her, f I, I did a document which had four ideas on. And there was a sort of a gap for the same size paragraph to make a fifth idea, which would fill the page. And I did, and I, and I thought I'd try and fill that gap. So I thought, oh, what I'll do is I'll just cut and paste that pitch I did for the road five years ago. So I sent her five ideas rather than four, which might increase the chances of one of the other four getting taken over. So I, I literally cut and pasted an unsuccessful pitch to which I didn't even get much of a reply. And she came back with, I really like this sound of that one and I went really I'm, I'm, I'm sure you didn't even notice last time were, um, the other, were the other four original ideas or were they also yeah I, I, th I think there were three original ideas and, and one other adaptation that actually got quite far yeah that actually got quite far and was with the writer of the aforementioned Kill the Moon actually it was a it was a co-writer with Peter Harness who very kindly lent his name to a, a project of mine which which did help me uh, in terms of credibility, because Peter's a very experienced and highly regarded writer. Um, but that's a sort of, that's an aside. Um, uh, and I thought that was the one that was more likely to get, get made, actually. And then, and then that went off in another direction, but was still bubbling under. But then the road kept not getting knocked back. And, and that's a like, wonderful way to not, there's, yes. not, there's, there's no progression yeah. there. There's, yeah. there's, 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 there's a lack of regression. But, you know, every time I got an email, I was going, right, they're going to say now either, no, we don't like this idea or the rights are impossible, which I sort of knew and she didn't, you know. So I knew that I'd got that up my sleeve as the kind of, well, that's the reason it's not going to happen. Uh, and then she went, he, he really likes it. Can you just, he, 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 and, and we got direction to change a couple of bits. He really liked that this is the commissioner. He really liked um, the squire's contraptions and inventions and says and so she said do more of those he likes those so I threw more of those in that actually then actually did go into the final script and then got cut out but I had I had frog's legs and various things but I, I, I put in I was quite pleased with how they turned out I hadn't wanted to put them in but you do as you're told and then as often happens with commissioners when they ask you to do a thing they then send you feedback where they say the bits they don't like and they inevitably turn out to be the bits that they've told yeah, you to put in, in the first place. Um, but that's a side note. And then, and then she said, oh, they want to do it. And I said, right, I think the rights are a nightmare. And also, because the stone tape had been done by an independent, mm -hmm. we thought that maybe the notoriously tricky Neil estate, I'm using inverted comments there, commas there, um, might have given them permission and so we thought we might have to work with that director and do that as a co-production and do lots of negotiation there. So that's what it looked like it was going to be. And then Charlotte, the producer, spoke to the notoriously tricky Neil estate, who were absolutely lovely, said, um, just send us what you want to do and the details of who this guy is, i.e. me, and we'll run it by Judith. And it was run by Judith. And they went, no, great. So all these things that we thought, or that I, the received wisdom was that, the Neil estate was tricky and that the road was, you know, a special property that had to be treated with kid gloves and only certain people were allowed to produce Nigel Neil's work was all, I mean, that side of things went as smoothly as they possibly could have done um, and were great. And the Neil estate were not remotely tricky. Judith was absolutely lovely and attended the recording. And um, so we were left to, we had to send them the script for their okay, but we got no notes, no 
negative feedback, no uh, instructions for what to do or what not to do. The only instruction I, we pitched it as an hour because the tele, the television version was an hour uh, and the radio commissioner decided it should be 45 minutes. So then I had to make some decisions about how to truncate it. I'd have preferred to have written it as an hour, but I suspect as I quite often am, my instincts were wrong and that it would probably have dragged it an hour and that even though the bit's not in it that I would have liked to have been in it, it was probably the right decision, much as it pains me to to say that. And I had to do I had to do certain things to turn it into three quarters of an hour. But an hour is a long time for a radio play. Mm. What um where was this reputation that the notoriously difficult Nigel Meal estate gained? why was that received wisdom? I don't I don't know, it's just what you read. When, well, when you hear about how, because also during the course of it, when people said, so what are you doing? And I'd bump into people. I, I remember going, meeting Peter Harness, the writer of Kill the Moon, for a cup of tea. And he, and, and, and he was meeting some other people who, who were, some of them were quite big sort of telly people. Uh, and they said, so what are you doing at the moment? And I went, I'm doing an adaptation of Nigel Neal's The Road. And they went, oh, we tried to get one of them off the ground about 15 years ago, and it went absolutely nowhere. So I kept meeting these people who go, well, that the, they tried to do it. And, and I know somebody had pitched it for radio before um, and not got anywhere. So I just, and, uh, and, and because of the whole, the, the Quatermass rights thing is, you know, is mired in all sorts of speculation and difficulty. Um, I, I think it was just an understanding that, you know, Nigel Neal related rights are complex. I think Quatermass related rights are complex. I don't think Nigel Neal related rights are complex at all. And our, our, as I say, our experience with the, the Neal estate was fantastic and, and, and with Judith as well. But presumably, like Andy, you had dealt with the, the Neal estate, i.e. Nigel Neal. Yes. Uh, is there any correlation with the Neal estate being difficult and Nigel being alive? Is that, is that <laughs> <laughs> yes <laughs> yeah I mean I think he was um he, he could be a difficult man and he could be it, it's obvious it's like anything it's more complicated than that he wasn't just a grumpy difficult man yeah, sure. he could be grumpy and difficult he could be wonderful he could be generous and kind uh and then if the mood was upon him, he could be difficult. Yeah, absolutely. I think uh, he was... I, I certainly sensed from Judith that she was... One, they really liked the play. So she was delighted that The Road, a really important work of Nigel Neal's, was being done again. And I think if you didn't write it as Nigel... I expect with Nigel, it's like, well, if they do this, I want them to do it well, because it's an important play and I wrote it. I don't want to muck it up. Whereas to Judith... She very much sort because all her interviews that she's ever done, she, because of course she was so successful, he was quite often mentioned as a side note to her. So to her, and she wrote me a letter and she wrote me emails and she wrote a note in my creative manuscript, she was delighted that Nigel's name was being kept alive. To us, of course, he's this legend of television. We know uh, because he wrote TV science fiction, he probably didn't get the OBE that he deserved. Whereas if he'd written some gritty drama, he might have, you know, he was a giant of television. But in the way that these things are written up, he's now a sort of subset of cult somewhere. So even though we know that he's more, more important than that, we know that Quatermass wasn't a cult, it, it was a mainstream success. I think for her, it was very important that 15 years after his death, somebody was keeping his name alive. And it meant that when there's an art, we got a two page spread in the Radio Times. Mm. It's Judith talking about her husband. It's not me talking about 
<laughs> how hard it's been for me to get a play on the radio, or, the, or, or, or even that Mark was in it, although Mark Gatiss has quoted it. it the, the, the thrust of the article was Judith and, and, and Nigel. So, so th there's obviously different um, different ambitions there. With Nigel, it was that if his work's going to be done, it's got to be true to his work. For Judith, it's keeping my husband's work and name alive. We'll conclude our look at the lost Nigel Neils in the next episode. Our thanks to Toby and to Andy for their time. Burkhouse is presented by John Deere and Howard Ingham. Howard's currently running a series of online seminars on such facts as identity horror, psychic fakery and alternative archaeology, normally running on Monday evenings. Please check out his website, room207press.com, for more details. Thanks for listening.